Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. The world can seem so big and so vast. And when you hear that 300,000 people have been killed by an earthquake in Haiti, how do you wrap your mind around that? How do you make people care back home, you know? So my job is to find compassion in a world of chaos. That was always my dream when I was a kid. I didn't want to have just a common life. I wanted to have an interesting life. I wanted to make photos. I wanted to travel and I wanted to help people in some way. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 87. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. When I was in high school, I was slightly obsessed over the topic of the Vietnam War. Now, this was back in the mid to late 80s in America, when Americans were, they were first really starting to open up about what had happened in Southeast Asia back during that time. There was a lot of literature, films, TV shows, and they were all coming out around that time, and and they dealt with this particular subject of of the Vietnam War. Even some of the music from that era seemed to have a bit of a resurgence in the mid-80s. For years, and this continued throughout my college years, I devoured any and all information that I could get my hands on about the Vietnam War. Tim O'Brien's books, uh, Michael Hare's dispatches, Tim Page's books of photography. Then about a decade later, just as I was about to embark upon my first documentary journey, the film Bomb Hunters, which we shot over the course of six months in Cambodia, I kind of re-immersed myself into the subject of Vietnam again. Only this time, my um, research was, shall we say, a bit less influenced by American pop culture. This time it was informed by the likes of war correspondents and historians from France, Australia, the UK, or the soldiers from both the North and the South Vietnam, as well as, of course, soldiers from the US forces. After my experience in Cambodia, which would turn into stints in Nepal, Haiti, Indonesia, I really became more and more taken with the idea of doing photojournalism or documentary film work for a living. The more cultures that I photographed and filmed in, the more cultures that I simply wanted to experience. And I just kept booking tickets to either travel or work in new countries, most times preferring the developing world where I could experience and see things as foreign to my own life back home as possible. I did my own documentary work. I worked on other people's doc films. I produced NGO videos. I did some commercial gigs even. But at the end of the day, it never really was about any gig or maybe even filming for that matter. It was really about the opportunity to tell someone's story that may have otherwise never been told. To try to open a door into a part of the world that not only I never knew about, but others back home never knew about. And let's be honest, I'll probably always be doing this. Traveling, exploring, filming, photographing, connecting with people around the world that I'd probably previously never even knew to dream of connecting with in the first 25 years of my life. Heck, it's how my wife Steph and I met. I was shooting an Intel gig in Malaysia. She was working features in Malaysia. Our son Flynn, he lived in Cambodia with us for half a year when he was only 10 months old while we worked on our our current doc project, Elvis of Cambodia. Flynn and Maya have been to more countries already in the first few years years of their lives than I had in my first few decades. Much like doc filmmaking, traveling and experiencing other cultures was something that I started doing much later on in life, which is probably why now at age 47, I feel like I have little time to waste since there are, I don't know, about 120 other countries I'd still like to get to in my life. Which is why my conversation with documentary photographer and humanitarian Allison Wright was one of the most insightful, heartfelt, life-affirming conversations that I've had in quite some time, probably since we last lived in Cambodia, to be honest, which is now somehow already nearly four years ago. 
I was recently messaging with a couple of friends of mine and colleagues also who are in the film industry and who also listen to the show. And I was trying to make them understand just how incredible this upcoming show was to be with Allison. All I kept really thinking to say was, she's one of us. She gets the world. She gets humanity. Her memoir, Learning to Breathe, One Woman's Journey of Spirit and Survival, was one of the few books that I've actually been able to read in its entirety in at least the last year. Welcome to running an online business, working on one's doc film, doing freelance work, producing a podcast, and oh yeah, parenting a two and a four-year-old. I barely have time to read my emails. But I was able to read this on the plane on a couple of recent trips that I've been on. And not only could I not put it down, but it stayed with me for quite some time afterwards. I'm a bit of an essentialist, and so don't really have that many material possessions, including books. Once I've read it, I either sell it or trade it back or or give the book away to someone. But I will not be doing that with this book, which, by the way, made me cry on three separate occasions while reading it. So when we come back from the break, I am honored to share with you my conversation with Allison Wright, documentary photographer and survivor of many exotic diseases and a catastrophic bus crash in rural Laos and founder of the nonprofit organization Faces of Hope. Her story will most likely leave a long-lasting impression on you and your doc life, or at least it damn well should. Her story and her wisdom is up next, here on The Documentary Life. Over the past decade, the world of documentary film promotion and distribution has changed dramatically. And what's awesome is, for the most part, is it highly benefits us independent doc filmmakers. However, we do recognize that navigating this new landscape of promotion and distribution can be a bit daunting when you're new to the task. Like, how do you make sense of the VODs and SVODs of the world? How do you find a distributor and sales agent that you can trust and who will work diligently to get your film out into the world? And what are they even looking for anyway? Or wait, maybe you should self-distribute your film. Maybe taking it out on a national tour is the right move for your film. But how would you even go about organizing such a thing? Is your film right for the potentially lucrative educational market? Or are community screenings the way to go? There are so many options available to you to get your film out to its market, but there are a lot of questions you probably have about how to do it, which is why we help you make sense of it all in our flagship program, the Documentary Academy. Inside the Academy, you will create a tailor-made, multifaceted, hybrid documentary film distribution strategy, one that's created based on your film and your film alone. You will have a strategic overview of how you will get your film out into the world and in front of the people who want to see it. Take control of your film distribution and enroll in the Documentary Academy at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. We'll see you there. I had the distinct pleasure of bringing on documentary photographer Allison Wright onto the Documentary Life podcast today. Allison, before we get into some of your amazing insight and before we get into your incredible accomplishments, I just want to welcome you to the Documentary Life podcast. Thank you for agreeing to come on today. Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So I'd like to read a little bit of of your bio here to give some context for our listeners, if I may. Allison Wright is a New York-based documentary photographer who has spent a career capturing the universal human spirit through her photographs and writing. For many of her editorial and commercial projects, Allison travels to all regions of the globe photographing indigenous cultures and people while covering issues concerning the human condition. She has traveled and worked in 150 countries, which, by the way, is exactly three more countries than where this show has been downloaded. Allison is a contributor to numerous outlets, including National Geographic, National Geographic Traveler, National Geographic Creative, Outside, Islands, CNN, The Travel Channel, Discovery, Smithsonian, The New York Times, and UNICEF. On January 2nd, 2000, Allison's life was nearly cut short during a devastating bus accident on a remote jungle road in Laos. 
Ellison's memoir, Learning to Breathe, One Woman's Journey of Spirit and Survival, chronicles this inspirational story of survival and years of rehabilitation and her ongoing determination to recover and continue traveling the world as an intrepid photojournalist. Wright has photographed for a multitude of humanitarian aid organizations with much of her work focused on post-conflict, disaster relief, and human rights issues, especially in the realm of women and children. This experience and her work in post-disaster conflict areas inspired Ellison to give back to the communities that she photographs by connecting photography and philanthropy by starting her own nonprofit, Faces of Hope, and that's at facesofhope.org, a fund that globally helps support women and children in crisis through education and health care. Okay, breathing now. <laughs> the thing is, what I've just read is really not even half of your accomplishments, Allison. Just this morning, I, I finished up your memoir, Learning to Breathe. And by the way, running a documentary business, doing this show, raising a two and a four-year-old, filming often in developing countries such as yourself throughout Southeast Asia, I rarely have time to read my emails, let alone an actual book these days. But not only did I finish it, Allison, for me, I did it in record time in like two weeks. Well, thank you for that. Yes, yes. Appreciate it. You know... Allison, your book, and I suppose in your work and in the cultures that you work in, in your meditation practice and spiritual outlook on life, I feel like I've found a kindred spirit. Your memoir is, honestly, it's one of the most fascinating books that I've read in a very long time. There were countless moments that really hit home for me. There were times I felt like I was sitting in a shack with you somewhere on the top of a mountain in Nepal, you know, seated on those little red plastic seats, right? Sipping chia and, and just sharing stories. I'm in awe of your work. I'm in awe of your humanity, Allison. And I, I want to be upfront about that right here and now. Well, thank you. But take a breath. Learning, learning to breathe. Exactly, exactly. I promise you I'll do my very best not to have expectations or to overwhelm you. And, and I'll do my best to keep the conversation, you know, within the time constraints that we have allotted for this. How's that okay. sound? That sounds great. Okay. <laughs> Allison, I'd love to hear how this all started for you. When did you first pick up a camera? And when did you know that, hey, you know what? This is something that I think I want to be doing as life's work. Well, I would say I definitely got my wanderlust in utero. I mean, my mom was a flight attendant for Pan Am back in the days when it was actually quite glamorous. Mm. And um, she's from England, and she met my father on a flight. He's from Belgium. And they, as they say, the rest is history. But they, uh, you know, got together and decided that they wanted me to be born in the States, mm. which is really interesting. I'm actually the first American born in my family. Uh. And we... You know, I, I grew up really traveling with them, and I loved it. I mean, I can really remember sitting on the pilot's laps, you know, back when I was little, back, you know, when those days when you actually could. When you and, could do such a thing, yeah. Yeah, and, and um, I just loved that feeling of flying. I felt very comfortable and, and seeing other cultures. And then, um, but the funny thing is I was actually a pretty shy kid. Mm. And then I, I can distinctly remember getting my first camera. I was 10 years old for my birthday and I got like a little, my birthday's like December 23rd. So it was a big combo present right. of like Christmas birthday, camera, a camera and a tape recorder. And <laughs> I got my journal and it's really interesting. I mean, how life defining those instruments became for me. I, I kept a journal every day since I was 10 years old. Mm, I wow and boxes of books. The tape recorder became this sort of, you know, feeling a need to document everything. But what really struck me was this camera. I just loved it. You know, it really brought me out of my shell. And, um, you know, I, I loved taking pictures. And then once I got in high school, I was on the high school yearbook and the school newspaper. And people always remember me as the kid with the camera. Yeah. But <laughs> incredible English teacher, Mr. Lee, that took me aside and he taught me how to use my first real DSLR camera. And he told me, you know, I remember I was 15 years old and he said, you know, you could actually make a living at doing this. Mm. You could be a photojournalist. You know, he was just so influential. He really, you know, I never wavered from that. I just thought, wow, someone travels the world and takes pictures, sign me up. I want to do that, you yeah. know? And so I went on, you know, to study photojournalism um, as an undergraduate, uh, 
and then I, yeah, I just, you know, kind of started traveling the world. I backpacked. Um, I really saved my money in college. I worked all through college, mm. and I really wanted to go to India. I was always really drawn to the right, spiritualism right. of India. Like, that's always been sort of a strong calling for me. And then when the time came, my father said, oh, it's so far, it's so dangerous. When <laughs> in Europe instead and I thought that sounded very pedestrian but I you know I kind of did it to appease him and then <laughs> yeah. what I actually did is I went over to Spain dropped a postcard saying how much I love the beaches of Spain and then what I actually did is I jumped a boat over to North Africa <laughs> right. that it was my first glimpses of poverty and people in need and right. refugees and children that you know that were in dire circumstances and I just thought wow, I want to do something with my camera to help in some way, like to document, you know, these kind of situations. And so for me, I was, you know, that was a very defining trip for me. So by the time I got back to California, um, I had a pretty good travel portfolio, I'd say. And then, but I, I went to a newspaper and in San Diego and I asked the editor, I said, can you, can you look at this work? Do you think I have any, you know, chance at making a living at doing this or and to my surprise she hired me on the spot amazing and um yeah it was really a wonderful opportunity you know back in the day when there actually were newspapers <laughs> to cut my teeth doing that kind of work because you're hustling every day you're seeing your work in the papers every day you know um but the best part for me is that i was actually you know had a third world country in my backyard with mexico mm. so any time I had, I was doing a lot of border stories, a lot of um, immigration, migrant. It was um, migration stories. And then I would do a lot of work with the kids over in Mexico, just on my own personal project. And I was very interested in children's rights and what was happening with right. children. So I think that's very important to always have your own projects, to always have be developing your own ideas. You know, I was certainly working full-time on a newspaper every day, but they weren't necessarily the stories I wanted to tell. You know, your best work is always going to be what you're most passionate about. So I spent a few years there, and I can remember, you know, in the back room at this newspaper flipping through a magazine, I saw these beautiful doe-eyed children from India. Oh, boy. And I was like, (laughs) the calling is still there. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm 24 years old. I'm I'm so old. Am I going to die at this newspaper? Which... I love looking back at our lives, like thinking that 24 is so old. Oh, but, man. <laughs> if only. Again, but, but I was like, oh, am I you know, ever going to get to India? So I called the photographer, um, he was, and I told him how much I loved his work. And he said, well, I'm a UNICEF photographer. Yeah. It was John Isaac at UNICEF. And he said, um, well, if you're ever in New York, come by and show me your portfolio. <laughs> you're like, next plane? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I bought a plane ticket and I went out there the following week because I'm also a huge believer in you've got to create your own destiny, you know, and you have to take up every opportunity, you know, throw open every door and then jump through it. You know, Mm. you can't just sit back and expect all this stuff's going to come to you. But (laughs) but I certainly wasn't expecting what then came next. He he looked at the work I'd been doing in Mexico, the kids, and he said, this is this is really great. He said, do you want to go shoot an assignment in Nepal? Right. And I had to pause five seconds for dignity <laughs> before I said, oh, my God, yeah, that's oh, yeah. exactly what I wanted to do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it was amazing. I, you know, I, I said yes. It was supposed to be a three-week assignment. And I, I decided to, you know, just see where this would take me. This just opened a whole new door, a whole new life. But to my surprise, this three-week assignment turned into a contract with UNICEF. And I didn't leave for more than four years. <laughs> I, Staying in Nepal, I felt like I'd really come home. And and then I started working for everybody, Save the Children, USAID. You know, there's a plethora of aid organizations there. There was a whole overturn of the government. So I started doing, you know, working with news agencies, yeah. covering the demonstrations, covering the overthrow of the government. So it was, an, it was an incredibly exciting time to be there. I loved being an expat. I loved the country. My job was to trek everywhere, yeah. all over and, you know, work with children's rights, their right to school, their right to health, their right to water, um, got very involved with child labor, those issues. And that's what got me the Dorothea Lang Award in documentary photography was my work with child labor over there. So that's um, a very important, you know, subject to me. Yeah. 
I will say that you are, you know, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but having been able to really delve into your passion at age 24 and to have that realization that you needed to jump on it sooner or later, that's a real blessing because for me, it wasn't until I was about 34 and I was working at a dead end job as a, as a, uh, a supervisor of a valet staff in Portland, Oregon at a hotel. And my, my housemate, uh, had just received a Fulbright to go shoot a documentary film in Cambodia. And, and the gentleman that he was going with, who was going to run sound for him, that fell through. And, and at that time, I was sort of the starving artist, the classic starving artist who's had, you know, had a digital video camera for a while and had, I'd done my own digital feature, but I had not at all found my way into the industry, no matter sort of how hard I tried. And so, you know, he took me aside one evening and said, Hey man, you know, I know you, you haven't got a pretty good job downtown at the hotel. And I don't know if this is something you'd be interested in, but I'm going to need a sound guy to go for six months over to Cambodia. Again, I don't know if it's something you're interested in. And again, like yourself, I had to kind of keep my composure for all of five seconds before I could blurt out, uh, yes, please take me away from this horrible dead-end job and life that I don't want to currently be living to allow me to pursue my passion. That sounds great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 sometimes it takes a while and, and, and we do get to it, but there's some important messaging in there. Um, and what you said earlier that, you know what doors do open and, and, and you've got to be able to know when the time is to jump in and, uh, and be able to take advantage of those, those opportunities contrary to, to, uh, uh, how a lot of pseudo spiritualism, I think would have one believe you can't simply just manifest your destiny. You have to be able to couple that with action. And, um, there's, good messaging there for sure. One of the things that I found particularly difficult for myself spending six months, that first six months in Cambodia filming. And now mind you, we were filming, essentially we were spending time with uh, the rural segment of the population of Cambodia who were out digging up old mortars and rockets and UXO that had been left over for, you know, from 30 years of civil conflict and the illegal American bombing during Vietnam. And they were digging up these bombs and they were taking either a hand uh, a propane torch or a handsaw and they were trying to separate the metal from the TNT. And they were doing this through economic hardship. You know how this sort of thing goes. And so at the time, and this was 2003, 2004, Cambodia had the highest per capita amputee rate in the world. And so, you know, every seven or so adults that we were coming across was missing a limb from, um, from, from tampering with, with, uh, with UXO. And, and so, you know, doing this kind of work and seeing this for six months and, and seeing at times some of the worst of mankind, but, 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 but really seeing this, uh, depression and devastation and, and then coming back into the U.S., I myself experienced a pretty massive sort of reverse culture shock. And I was fortunate to then end up getting hired to work on to, as the editor for the film Bomb Hunters for the next four months. And so I kind of was able to, to, to jump in on, on that footage and, and the transcripts and hunker down in the basement for like four months. But it was a particularly difficult transition back into 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 western life and i know that you have experienced a little bit of this obviously a bit of this yourself and in fact if i could allison i'd like to read from your from your memoir learning to breathe uh, a similar sort of experience and then i want to talk about this with you you wrote in your book one thing has always been extremely tough the return to home life in the states Sometimes when I come back from developing countries, I am plagued by the dichotomy between our lives and the way most of the world lives. We have so many choices. I get overwhelmed just trying to decide which laundry soap to choose in the supermarket. How could I have so much when many have so little? This awareness has brought me a daily appreciation for even the simplest things I do have, a hot shower, a soft bed, food on the table. What I'd like to ask you, Allison, for those of us who are doing work in, in, in countries like this, who are doing work in developing countries, and we're seeing, um, seeing heart, uh, you know, hardship on a daily basis, when we come back to our, our quote-unquote normal lives, right, in Western society, I'd love to hear what are some of the things that you do to sort of help with the decompression? 
do you have any sort of strategies or suggestions? Yeah, it's still incredibly strange. I mean, I just flew in from Uganda yesterday. You're in these really intense, you know, situations where people don't even have anything to put in a pot. Like you're photographing someone stirring a pot and you're like, could you just put some tea or something in there? And they don't even have that to like, you know, I mean, there's, there's just such a heartbreak with that. And it, yeah, it doesn't, you know, and then you come back and now I now live, I'm from California. I now live in New York city, you know, so it's like, (laughs) it's even harder, you know, you come back and it's like, you know, go, 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 go. rush, rush, rush. (laughs) Yeah. And everybody's in a rush and everybody just sort of boasts such self-importance here. And, you know, they're, you know, you've, you've just got this ridiculous, you know, you look at the prices of what you're paying for dinner, like, which is more (laughs) absorbent than anyone on the planet. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. It I feels mean, like lunacy. <laughs> it's lunacy. And, and you know, the, I had a really hard time when I came back from Nepal because mm. it was such a long period of time. Yeah. We literally had nothing. I was living there while there was the, um, the trade embargo going yeah. on between India, India and right. China. So yeah. there weren't even cars on the road because there was no gasoline or diesel available. We had to fly to Thailand just to buy amenities like shampoo. I mean, we literally had nothing there, you know, and it was like a really big deal if anybody ever brought in a bottle of wine and, you know, but, but it was exciting times. It was like, you know, being in my twenties and like really kind of, you know, I lived with a Nepali family and, you know, so for me, the challenges are what I, I sort of stepped out of photojournalism. I covered a lot with the revolution and the other you know, the government. I saw a lot right. of people being killed. I've been in really, really difficult situations. Indeed. And what became more important for me was in personally, instead of telling the sad stories, mm. I wanted to show hope. I wanted to show things that were working. And that became for me more inspirational as I saw the world, you know, because I see now when I travel, I see incredible hardship, but I really focus on these people that I feel are so inspiring that are overcoming this kind of hardship. Mm. And, you know, that's really what a lot of my, my focus on is, but, you know, sometimes stories can just be so overwhelming. Like last year, I just, I went through, you know, just a bit of a personal crisis when I came back from covering the Royenga, you oh, know, boy. it was just so hard. I mean, the assignment was hard. I got, you know, <clears throat> I got arrested. I mean, there was just a number of issues that I got really sick, you know, but, but then the, the hardest part was just being, you know, with these people that are, you know, so beautiful. I've spent a lot of time in Myanmar and yeah. I've even interviewed Aung San Suu Kyi. I interviewed her and photographed her for a book cover. That's and right. Yeah. Get out here and you just see, you know, story after story and everybody, every woman had the same story about being, um, you know, the home was burned down. They were raped repeatedly. The husbands were machete. The children were taken, you know, and it, it's just, story after story and then you realize that you're just in one tiny little corner that's right of this massive refugee situation of over a million people right and i don't know i came back and i just had a really hard time shaking this and i think because i couldn't find the hope i couldn't find the answer mm. you know i couldn't find the inspiration and and it made me question what i was doing i thought oh my gosh i've just spent a whole career working to hopefully better the lives of people. Like, what have I done? What has this done? That's right. I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. And I just feel like, what's even the point? Everybody's still killing each other. I mean, it's one thing to cover natural, natural disaster. Like I covered the earthquake after Haiti and the tsunami. As as did I. That's right. You know, it's, it's heartbreaking enough to see that, but to see what humanity can do to each other is devastating. It's the worst. it is. It's the worst. And so I went through like a little kind of, you know, mini crisis because I had to give a huge talk the next day Ugh. through National Geographic and um, B&H. And so <clears throat> I go to this event at the New Yorker Hotel and I'm like, oh, my God, there's over a thousand people. And, you know, and I had to get up on stage and the guy said, oh, there's like 45,000 people live streaming this right now. <laughs> like, what? Like, I just felt like totally false, you know, and I get up there and I showed my work and I gave my talk. And and then this guy at the end, 
asked a question. He raised his hand and he said, do you think that a photo can make a difference? And I was like, there's the question. It's a great question. Yeah, there it is. That every day. I, <laughs> I said, you know, I'm going to throw that question back out to you guys, yeah. the audience. I said, you just saw this huge breadth of work that I've done over the years. You know, you've seen what I've gone through to, 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 to do it, you know. <clears throat> and is anybody here leaving feeling changed, motivated, inspired, different? educated, you know, and, and like he started clapping and other people started clapping and other people. And I was like, okay, all right then, <laughs> you know, like that's why I do what I do. You know, I mean, you have to bring it home somehow and give these people a voice, you know, that's the main crux but, of it. But is that enough? And, and, and I asked that Allison because it's a struggle that I have with myself. Mm-hmm. Are the images enough? Because it's one thing to have an audience, in my case, an audience moved by a documentary film that they've seen that I've that I've done. It's it's one thing to have them moved at the moment that they see it. And maybe even they think about it the next day and they write me an email or shoot me a text thanking me for the work. But I question for myself, is that enough? Because for real change, is it simply change in someone's heart? Or do I have to motivate or do you have to motivate people through our work in a way that that motivates them to get out and do something more tangible? Well, that's how I I felt. You know, I felt like I needed more of a call to action. And, um, you know, because there was this long history of, oh, journalists shouldn't be involved. You shouldn't be emotionally involved and all that. And I I actually got a lot of flack for what I did decide to do. You know, we'll probably talk about this later, but, you mm. know, I was in this really horrible accident where I was really injured in the field mm. and which my book, Learning to Breathe, really um, documents. But this, you know, this really changed my perspective in that it it created a lot more, first of all, empathy for the people I'm photographing, but yeah. it also made me feel like I wanted to make more than a photo. I wanted to make a difference. And I always hope that by, you know, making a photo that people will see it and want to help create change or, you know, and I'm like, why not me? So that's what inspired me when I wrote my book is to start um, my own nonprofit. Because so many people would look at my images and get all riled up and mm. say, what we do to help. What do we do now? That's right. That's and right. so I wanted to give them a place to go. So I created my own nonprofit. It's a fund called Faces of Hope, yeah. which is um, named after a book, a photo book I did on children in developing countries. Right. And this fund helps women and children in crisis through education and healthcare. And, um, you know, in the, in the book, Learning to Breathe, I talk about, you know, this whole story about how I was really injured in Laos and the first thing I did is I wanted to go, you know, to, uh, to help these people in Laos. So I brought five American doctors and $10,000 for the medical supplies to help them get a little clinic going. But, but now what I do is when I'm working in places, instead of standing there taking a photo where people are like, well, what are you doing for us? You know, I'm able to say, well, hmm. I, I brought 4000 I was able to raise money and bring $4,000 with the tents for Haiti or mm. after the earthquake in Nepal to help bring tents there, to help send girls to school in Africa or India. When I was in the Congo doing a story on this remarkable woman that set up a shelter for girls, young little girls mm. who were being raped by their teachers and mm. then become pregnant and nowhere to go, you know, was able to, do- you know, able to donate money to her. And so I, I send, uh, you know, people see these stories and they're motivated. And then I put the stories on the Faces of Hope website and and say that I've made my donation. I've seen this project. If, you know, I donated, but if you'd like to find out more, you can go directly to them and then, you know, they can, people can donate to them. So it's just a way of creating a little bit more awareness about certain grassroots organizations that people might not ordinarily hear about. People that are doing remarkable things in this world that, you know, to help and others. And so I'm, it, the idea is that I'm partnering with different nonprofits right. in that way. But, um, so for me, that's just one, you know, feeling like, okay, it's small potatoes, it's drop in the bucket, but you know, at least I feel like there's a, something and it's hard, you know, you just have to look at like one step at a time because we see so much and we get so overwhelmed because 
not only because we see so much, but it's just like the world can seem so big and so vast. And when you hear that 300,000 people have been killed by an earthquake in Haiti, how do you wrap your mind around that? How do you make people care back home? You know, so my job is to find compassion in a world of chaos. And, you know, and for me, a lot of that is just about bringing in stories of single people one-on-one, making you feel that connection because all my work is about how are we universally connected? You know, how, how are we connected? How can we help one another? And, you know, it's not us and them. It's like the book, I, I just produced this photo book called Human Tribe. And it's just a book of, you know, global portraits. I've been about 150 countries now, but, you know, looking at how different we look, but how much we're the same the world over. And, (laughs) You know, that's my greatest takeaway is that we all want to love and be loved. We all want a little money in our pocket enough to get by. We want safety and health for ourselves, our friends, our family, education for our kids. But, you know, we make it more complicated than it needs to be. You know, it's just it's really the same the world over. So if we can just sort of remember that and, you know, the people I was just with in Uganda want exactly the same things that I just talked to my friends about at dinner last night here. Unreal. Yeah. You know, so... Allison, let's talk a little bit more about this connection that you speak of. I think it's a fairly common thing, and and you hear this a lot, certainly from you know the old school war photographers. Um, it's happened with myself at times behind the camera. I'm sure it's you've had to deal with it throughout your work your, yourself, which is in the heat of the moment, and you've been in some particularly precarious moments that you've been photographing. What are, what can you do that allows you to one? either not be so taken by the frame that you put your life or others' lives at risk, and two, not or also not be taken so by the emotion of the moment that you don't get the image that you need to get. Where is that middle ground so you can stay connected with the work and what's happening in front of you? I guess because, you know, you have to remember why you're there. You know, it's like... I think it was Martin Luther King that said if if no one had taken those pictures of the of the demonstrations and the civil rights, mm. you know, no one would know about it. Mm. You know, hard pictures to look at, for instance. But, you know, I mean, really, my job is to bear witness. And, you know, it's hard. I was photographing these Orianga who are in tears and you're like, you know, thinking, OK, this is dramatic, you know, I mean, but. You know, that's the things, especially with stills. It's not like an ongoing video. You've got to capture that moment, you know. And as this woman's tearfully telling me her story about how she was raped repeatedly, as was her daughter, and then her daughter standing there pregnant in shock. And, and you know, her husband was macheted. And I was so overcome with the story that I did get the pictures, but then I made a, a pretense about wanting to photograph her in the back of this this plastic tarp tent she was staying in. And I gave her I gave her my money. I gave her all the money I had on me. Oh, wow. You know, because I just felt like, where is her hope? You know, where's her hope? And she literally fell into my arms just weeping. <clears throat> and I thought, when is the last time anyone showed this woman kindness or compassion or but but it was challenging in the way that once that camera came down, I felt like it was a lightning bolt went through my body. Like I literally, and even my translator said, what do you do with something like that? And I'm like, I have no idea. And, and yet it was really, really hard for me to shake. Once I came back from New York, it just was so heavy that I just felt like this anchor had, you know, just latched onto me. And I, I no, I just, I, I really struggled with that. And, you know, then you just have to, like, really work out, you know, how, what do you do for self-care? You know, for me, I have, you know, my, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's not always just being busy and going out with friends. It's finding those key people in your life, to actually sit down and listen to the, to, wow, where did you just go? What yeah, did you- yeah. Coming back and just being busy and with your friends, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> it has never worked for me. Like some people, you know, people want to hear about, oh, how was Uganda? You know, they want to hear about it for like two minutes. Oh, yeah, you that's know, it. They want to hear really what happened. But, but you have to carve out time to find those people that really will, you know, listen to, you know, sometimes you just need to talk, you know, other times I need to not talk. And then I go and I do a little 
getaway meditation retreat. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I will admit I actually recognize signs within myself of a bit of post-traumatic stress disorder that I've had before. Yeah. So, you know, I sought out a therapist, you know, um, which is not always easy because I travel so much, right. you know, so, you know, but that helped me just get through that, that hurdle so I could get on to the, you know, to the next thing. But I think it's, it's really important to honor it and process it because, you know, if you don't, it's going to, it's going to find you and it's going to catch up to you and it's not going to be pretty, you know, and, and that's the thing. You just want to make sure that you're really, you know, taking care of yourself because I'm not a tried and true photojournalist. Mm. I'm not somebody that moves in a pack. Mm. I'm incredibly insular. You know, I work really often for long periods of time in the field on my own. And it's so there's no there's no bounce back. There's no one to talk to about it. You know, nobody will ever really understand what I've seen or what I've gone through because, you know, it's not like these packs of journalists that all hang out, you know, and I've hung out with them in different times that, you know, they do, <clears throat> they ha- go to the bars, they hang out, they have inappropriate sex, they do whatever it takes yeah. to sort of let off steam. That's right. You know, I just don't run in those circles. It's just a very different, you know, being a documentary photographer is a lot different than being a photojournalist where you just jump in and you have in and out, in, in and, and out. out. In and out, in and out. This assignment, okay, Rajiv Gandhi just got blown up, and I'm going to go cover the demonstration in Nepal, you know, whatever. Yeah. I'm, like, going back repeatedly to places. Yeah, and there's an immersion the, process that's happening. Exactly. And that's where you're so alike, doc filmmakers. But, you know, everybody has their own thing, so, Absolutely. you know, it's not... Absolutely, and, and, and we're not at all. In fact, this conversation is, is completely without judgment. You know, you, you speak about how it's, everyone deals with these things differently, right? And mm-hmm. you talked about coming back into the immersion in, into, into sort of social life here with family and friends, and it was something that I had to learn, you know, early on, that on one hand... I I wanted to talk with somebody desperately as well. I wanted them to understand what I had experienced and seen. I felt the responsibility for that. But I also felt like there were times that I overwhelmed people with that because look, no one that has you know in from from in my in my case when I first went to Cambodia and was doing work there when I came back and tried to explain what I had seen Trying to explain that to someone who has, one, not been to a post-genocide, you know, uh, country, one, maybe even somebody who's never been to a developing country, it's, it's you know, you get this glazed over expression in almost this, um, you know, I can't even describe what you get back, but, but it, you end up feeling like you've overwhelmed that person. And then you end up feeling pretty empty yourself because you just realize, you know what, that person has no clue what I'm talking about. And, and, and to try to do that without judgment, it's not an easy thing, but, uh, yeah, I'm constantly finding, trying to find ways to better, um, to better sort of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, decompress when I come back from, from doing that type of work, though it's nowhere near the amount or type of work that you yourself are, are doing, um, you mentioned meditation and, and, and we don't have a lot of time left in this conversation. And I do, I I do feel um, that I want to bring that up. Meditation has played a massive part in your life, whether it was surviving the bus crash events in Laos um, and then, and then hospitalization in Thailand and then back here in the States, whether it was climbing Mount Kili, you know, just a year after those events. Can you tell me the ways in which meditation has how it's helped you in in moments like reimmersion back into the Western society, or when you're out on assignment and you're taking very difficult photographs in challenging situations. How is how is med- meditation helping and benefiting you in those ways? Well, I, I got into it. You know, I got into it before I even knew there was any kind of like real words for it. I was always sort of in, interested in you know <laughs> the spiritualism of Asia. You know, when I was in high school, I read oh, yeah. a lot of. But, it, you know, I really got immersed in it when I got to Nepal and got very involved in yoga, meditation, and um, and was doing long, well, you know, long three-week retreats, silent retreats in India. And, um, and I feel like it really gave me the skills, the tools to, to really, I don't know, get through these challenging situations that I was in. Um, but then, <clears throat> you know, this when I was on assignment in, in Laos... 
and I got, you know, my bus got, we were on a very precipitous mountain road and the bus got sheared in half by a huge logging truck. I was right at the point of impact. People around me were killed, but was really devastating is when I, these two, the bus caught fire, two men came and pulled me off this burning bus. And when I came to, I realized really quickly I was in really bad shape. My back was broken. I couldn't move. I was immobile. Um, all my ribs were broken on my left side. My pelvis was shattered. My um, arm was half severed off. I had major internal injuries, collapsed lungs. And, you know, worst of all, I'm in a country with no health care whatsoever. <laughs> you know, guerrilla warfare going on. And so long story short, um, you know, the villagers dragged me to their village. And, you know, this kid sewed my arm back up with an upholstery needle and thread, no painkillers or nothing. So, like, I was you know, really out of my mind with the pain, but I knew if I lost consciousness or went into shock, I was not going to come out of this alive. So I really felt like, you know, having that skill, that tool of like really focusing on the breath really, you know, saved me initially. And then, you know, laying there for 10 hours where they said, we don't know what to do. There's no phones. We can't get any medical care. All I thought about was like, breathe in, breathe out. Like every single, like all that time on the meditation cushion, I felt really helped, you know, reach, get me to this point of, um, survival. So, um, you know, I, it wasn't my time. This British aid worker just happened to find me and drove me, you know, seven hours in the back of a pickup truck to Thailand, which, you know, <laughs> I'm sure that was comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Just brutal. You know, we never, we didn't think I was going to make it, but you know, I mean, I'm really alive today because of the kindness of a stranger. So that's, you know, something that I'm very cognizant of, mm. you know, I'm always like, feeling like I need to pay it forward because this is unbelievable what people did for me. But, you know, Alan Guy with his wife, um, and they got the American embassy to pick me up on the Lao Friendship Bridge, get me to Thailand, yeah. you know, get me to a border hospital where there was one doctor, you know, who discovered my heart had been torn out. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I flatlined and then I came you know, it was three weeks being in intensive care before I was met about back to the States where given the very grim prognosis, I'd probably never walk again. And, yeah. you know, so that was a big, that was a battle, you know, I mean, it was definitely a struggle. It was, I mean, I can say now coming out the other side of it, it was a gift because I didn't know I had it in me physically or spiritually to get through something like that. But, you know, there was more than 30 surgeries and it took years of rehabilitation and learning how to walk again and getting my life back. And I'm, I'm doing amazing. I mean, I'm really, really so grateful and thankful I'm back, you know, full force, like doing what I love to do. And it's, it's funny because, you know, I just went to urgent care yesterday to, for this cough that I have <laughs> the came in and gave me this really odd look. And I thought, uh Oh, now what? Oh, I, mean, I want to show you something on the x-ray. And he goes, I've never seen this before. And he showed me this x-ray of, and I was really scared, like he was going to tell me I had lung cancer or something. But he said, look at your ribs. He said, have you ever been in a bad accident? Oh, but they boy. were all still broken. And the way they've healed is they're all just like kind of laying on top of each other. No way. Yeah. But he said, I can't believe you're out there doing what you're doing like this, looking like this. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. He said, I've never <laughs> seen that before. But, you know, I it's just, it's kind of, um, I don't know. I just find it remarkable of, you know, what we're capable of. So for me, there were a lot of elements in that, in that, you know, sitting on that meditation cushion, not only helped me to get through yeah. survival, it helped me get through pain It helped me get through also very interestingly getting through a sense of identity because having done this for my entire life, you know, I'm very much used to like, always being on the road, always traveling, always, and suddenly I'm bedridden, staring at a ceiling on a morphine drip for months. So you start questioning, well, who is Allison? Who am I? Who am I really? You know, I'm not Allison the photographer anymore. And mm. then, you know, it was interesting because I couldn't shoot. I wrote, and I wrote this book, this yes. best-selling book, Learning to Breathe, One Woman's Journey of Spirit and Survival. And it did really well, and it gave me the money to move to New York. And you know, it was just, and, and I, and I know it touched a lot of people that wrote to me that, you know, I, I found a whole other audience that I didn't find through my photography. So that for me has been incredibly rewarding. And so you don't know where life is going to take you sometimes. Sometimes you just have to make the best out of what you got, you know, and, and that's when I realized, you know, that I'm really a storyteller that, you know, just happens to travel. I'm not just a 
traveler that takes photographs. I mean, I really want to, I don't know, in whatever capacity, even if you're, you know, carving it out on a rock, you know, how do you communicate with people? How do you help others? How do you, that was always my dream when I was a kid. I didn't want to have just a common life. I wanted to have an interesting life. I wanted to make photos. I wanted to travel and I wanted to help people in some way. So you kind of have to look at like, there's some days and I'm like, God, I wish I was more successful. And then other days and I'm like, you know what? You kind of set out what you wanted to do. I really wanted to make books. I just published my 10th book. But, you know, we get caught up in this whole, uh, you know, wanting to be something more or what is success. or, And that's where meditation kind of brings me back home. Like, you know, you're okay. Just, you know, take one breath at a time and just appreciate being here. And I think that's the key thing. And what's most important for me is to actually be truly aware. And that is the ultimate goal with me with this meditation is I want to really truly feel like I'm here because so many people are just kind of floating through life, you know? And why I say this is a gift is that for me, it's a touchstone. I mean, I can really remember that feeling of really truly feeling every breath was going to be my last. And I had such an acute awareness. It was just the most beautiful, profound experience to be able to dip my toe into feeling my own mortality and going to the other side like that. And anybody that's had a near-death experience, I think, can really relate to what I'm speaking of because you kind of become part of a club. You know, it's really hard. You know, it's like going to another country. You know, you can't describe it. There's no verbiage for it. But once you go over to that other side, it's, it's remarkable. It makes me really stop and pause in my day and say, Oh, it's great to be here. It's really great. This is all one giant PS, you know? Amen and namaste, sister. (laughs) 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 We've been speaking with documentary photographer, Allison Wright. Allison, (laughs) what what an uh, absolute honor and, and pleasure. Um, I hope we can do this again. And you know what? I hope someday we can sit together on some little red plastic chairs somewhere on a mountaintop in Nepal. Yeah, we have to try and arrange that. That would be... That would be brilliant. I I can't thank you enough. Um, Your words are so incredibly inspiring. The book that we've been alluding to many times is Learning to Breathe. And of course, the nonprofit uh, is Faces of Hope, and you can go to facesofhope.org. Um, and we'll put all of these up, all of these links in the show notes for the episode. Ellison, thank you so much for being on the documentary life. I hope we can speak with you again sometime soon. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. This has been a, a real, truly lovely connection. Thank you. And um, all right, to be continued. Absolutely. Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.